All right. Today we'll, we will resume our study of the book of James. And so I want to invite you to turn with me in, the co- in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 3. Just a reminder that we, we give this reminder periodically, but we, we believe the Word of God is living and active. We believe God's Holy Word is powerful. It will change your life. In the scripture, you will hear the voice of your Savior. And so we believe that just as we have freely received God's word, we should freely give God's word. And so if you're sitting here today and you do not own a copy of God's word for yourself, look at the back of that pew in front of you and you'll see a Bible there. Just take it. It's yours. Write your name in it and take it home and read it, okay? And you will find yourself comforted, convicted, but the Word of God is is precious, okay? And we can replace it. So we don't want anyone to not have a Bible. So if you don't have one, take it. And if you know, or if you know someone who would read it, by all means, take it and give it to them. We can always buy more, okay? So... That announcement, and and that's always a long-standing, that's an open announcement. I just, I don't have time every week to say that, but but it's true every week, okay? So by all means, uh, take it if you don't have one. Okay, so let's go ahead and see what James, the Lord's brother, the pastor to the apostles, what he has to say, starting in verse 13 of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass fades The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. (coughs) For by your spirit inspiring James to write these words. Grant that as we come to grips with what it means to be a child of heaven, a citizen of the kingdom of God, that we would come to grips with the new ethos and pathos that should characterize us, the wisdom that we should be guided by, and grant that we would walk in the newness of life. For Christ's sake, we pray this. Amen. All right, so as we have been discussing in our study of James to this point, James is all about practical faith. 
Uh, James is a book in which, through the Holy Spirit, we are being confronted and challenged to assess the veracity of our, of our faith and, of our, and the legitimacy of our claims to religiosity and spirituality, <coughs> not so much by how often we, we sing songs and how much we throw in the offering, play all these good things that we like, but rather on the basis of a life well lived. We've been confronted by the fact that, that we are, first of all, to see that all of life, there is no circumstance of life that can't be seen as some sort of a trial or a test, an opportunity to be sharpened and grow. We saw this at the beginning, and, and from the very beginning of the book, we see, <coughs> I apologize, I have a cold, and that's all it is, but all this drainage is making me cough, and I do apologize. Please bear with me. Um, but from the very beginning, it takes wisdom. It takes a certain wisdom to see in any given circumstance you're facing the fact that there's more to this than simply the miserable circumstance facing me. Conversely, it takes wisdom to see in this something more than the, than the natural gratification of a good experience, that there's something deeper, something more meaningful Something more that God has for me in whatever circumstance I find myself. <coughs> and so, James at the beginning of his book tells us that if we lack this wisdom, this perception to see, we should pray to God who will answer our prayer if we approach him in faith. But he quickly turns his eye, James does, to the characteristics of true, pure religion. And in chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, we're given three characteristics. And again, they're all practical. <coughs> First is a controlled tongue. Has your, dis, has your religion given you the, the constraint, the control to guard what you say? Second, has it created within you a heart of benevolence toward the vulnerable, characterized here by widows and orphans? Third, has it resulted in you having a disposition and a will to engage in holy living? Specifically, it says being unstained by the world. So watching what you say, being merciful and benevolent towards the marginalized and being holy in your life. These are all practical, visible, demonstrable signs of vital faith. James is saying in long form what Paul says in short form in Galatians 5, 6, when Paul says in very, very short form, what counts for anything is faith working through love. Okay? So remember, Paul and James are not opposed. They're, they're addressing different situations, but they have the same view. The faith that saves. There's many kinds of words we can use to describe or faith that we can label as faith. But what the Bible says is that the kind of thing that you can actually call faith, the faith that saves, is a living 
thing. A faith that saves is a faith that is alive. It is far more than mere assent to doctrinal precepts. We saw that James in chapter 2 goes so far as to say that if, if your faith is simply the faith that affirms correct doctrine, it's no better than that of a demon because a demon believes all those things. But it doesn't mean a thing to the demon. In fact, I could dare say having the possession of right knowledge and still living in rebellion is precisely what makes them a demon. And so we have been challenged in chapter 2 in the first part of chapter 3 to live out our faith to let our faith demonstrate to let our faith uh, control and shape how we think about our lives and how we think about even our speech as we learned before right before Easter and the key thing from last sermon in James that I want you to remember because it's going to be germane to this discussion is we talked about the tongue being a torch that sets things on fire but the tongue is initially ignited that torch is ignited by hell itself and we saw that the tongue in, in the natural man the tongue wants to serve the purposes of hell and so all the disorder and chaos and dissension and destructive things that occur when we speak, they serve to advance the purposes of the dominion of Satan. And so really, as believers, we have to see that we serve either the king of the kingdom of heaven or the lord of the dominion of Satan. <coughs> it really is that simple. There are no free agents. And so, we turn then to back to a discussion of wisdom. Because wisdom is essential for understanding these things. We all want wisdom. Indeed, <coughs> from the very beginning, Eve perceived that the fruit was conducive to the attainment of wisdom. Remember that? And she wanted it. What do we mean by wisdom, though? There are multiple ways we speak of wisdom. There are multiple ways the Bible speaks of wisdom. There's profound insight. Someone who's wise has the ability to read a situation, anticipate possible courses of action, and just... You have insight as to how things are working. And so that, that perspective then enables you to have peace in the midst of, of, of seeming disorder and disarray. Uh, I, I remember being in Afghanistan and, you know, we had fire bases here, outposts there, garrisons there. And it didn't seem to make any rhyme or reason order until I was able to go into the, 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 the control room for the whole theater. And it, this was the kind of place where cell phones aren't even allowed in the building. And you see it all laid out. And once you see it all laid out with, with sectors and spheres and everything else, 
all of a sudden, everything made sense. In the same way, J.I. Packer tells a story about, he told a story about, you know, the, the, the world-famous London subway, how it just, it's, it, it's, it's like this, it's like, it's like watching ants at work. I mean, it's seemingly like chaos, but it's just, and going into one of their control rooms and seeing all the lights, when you get perspective of the bigger picture, that is sometimes called wisdom. Because now, having seen the light, you're able to go back down into the valley and, oh, okay, this is what's going on. Now, I, I have to tell you guys that that is called wisdom. That's a form of wisdom. And some of that is in the Bible. But, but I tell you what, ordinarily, that's, that's not the kind of wisdom you're going to get in life, ordinarily. Ordinarily, even the most mature of Christians can't look at every situation and see, oh, this is what God is doing there. Uh, wisdom usually, the, the ordinary way wisdom is used, even in Scripture, is as practical skill at living. And, and the best way I can describe it is, is, is like when, when you learn how to drive, at first you're not very good. You can hardly control the vehicle. You know, you, you, you accelerate too fast, you, you apply too much force on the brake, and everybody, oh, flies to the, at first. But over time, and as you gain experience driving in different weather, on different surfaces, you, you, you learn how to anticipate things that are happening, and you just become good at driving. That's kind of how it is in life. If you, if you pay attention to how the rules of life work, how, how, how the principles that God has set in motion, you can typically anticipate problems, many problems that you'll have in life, and, and you can just live well. That's, that's the normal wisdom described in Scripture. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. But there's a third way the Bible speaks of wisdom. And in our culture, we would call that, sometimes we call it conventional wisdom. If you want to be more academic, you can call it zeitgeist. But there's a wisdom that refer, there, there, there's a prevailing sense of sensibilities about right and wrong, good, bad, beautiful, ugly, uh, that's generally accepted by a people in a given time and place. This cultural mood that, that sort of pervades a place at a time in history. And, and that's called the wisdom of the age in Scripture. The wisdom of the world. Now, there's all these ways you can speak about wisdom. But the thing that we have to get back to is the fact that we have been called to be citizens of a new kingdom. And so this all comes together when we consider that as Jesus has taught us in his high priestly prayer and other places, we, we are definitely in the world, but we're not of the world. Have you given much thought to what it means to be in the world, but not of the world? I hope you do. Uh, to be in the world obviously means that we live, we're embodied beings, living in time and space, in some place, and we 
we need to conduct ourselves in accordance with the conventions, customs, and laws of whatever place we find ourselves in uh, without embracing its values. And we need to follow those customs and laws and conventions without breaking the laws of God. But we really are tethered to a place. You need to work. You need to pay your taxes. You need to, you, you, you should vote. You, we got to do stuff. Okay? Um, but we're not of the world. What does that mean? To not be of the world. There's a sense in which I'm of the world. I mean, I'm, I'm made of what we call organic matter. And, and, and I, you know, I was born on this planet and I'm going to die and my body will be planted back in this planet. What do you mean I'm not of this world? It means we're not of, of its kind. We're not kindred spirits with it as a spiritual energizing force. To not be of the world means that we don't draw and rely upon its energies, its motivations, its priorities. It's not our sense of driving, sustaining force. The world has no hold on us. We've been set free from it. It doesn't own us. So it is not our master. But the problem is, is that all too often we live like we still are of the world. And so what that means then is we are bombarded. You will be enculturated by whatever culture you find yourself. If you think you have not been enculturated, you may have resisted the last few years because you're old enough and stubborn enough to have done that. But you, you've been enculturated into basically post-60s feminist, atheistic America. We all have been. You will be assimilated, to borrow from Star Trek. Unless you take super intentional, diligent steps now, to the extent that we have one foot in the world, that's not a big deal. But we have been made citizens of a new kingdom. And this kingdom, you see depicted in, in Daniel where it's this new kingdom that comes and it's carved out of a mountain and the rock comes and hits the statue on the feet and it grows and grows until it's the only kingdom that remains. And kingdoms have cultures Kingdoms have customs. Kingdoms have conventions. Kingdoms have an agreed upon set of precepts that determine and define right, wrong, good, bad, ugly, and beautiful. In other words, kingdoms have a wisdom. And so as people who have been born again and engrafted into a new kingdom, we need to learn the wisdom of heaven. And so the pages of scripture are filled with depictions of how the wisdom of heaven is foolishness to man and how the foolishness of man is wisdom to the kingdom of God. Last week, 
at Easter, we celebrate the triumphal resurrection, but the death of Christ on the cross is a prime example of where the world sees nothing but defeat, loss, foolishness. Only an idiot follows a religious leader who gets himself killed. That's the world. Winners win. Winners succeed. And you want to follow a winner, not a loser, right? That's the wisdom of the world. But yet the wisdom of God sees in the death of Christ the defeat of all our enemies. And so it's victory. The wisdom of God is all about humility and seeking and helping. It is the exact opposite of the wisdom of the world. So, the proof is in the pudding. What kind of wisdom are you following? One of the weird things, I shouldn't say weird, that's wrong. One of the interesting things about this passage is he does not give you any imperatives. It's as if he's asking you the question, oh, you think you're wise? Let's look at your life. What wisdom are you following? The wisdom that is earthly, that is natural, that, that, that just fills the space in which we exist, it's fundamentally demonic. H- how is that the case? Well, look, look right here in verse 16. Be- because those impulses that come from an enactment of human wisdom, jealousy, selfish ambition, What does it manifest? Disorder and every vile practice. When Jesus talks about the effect of a demon leaving a person, what does he describe it as? They leave the place all in disorder. To be in a state of disorder is to be in a state of of demonization in a sense. That's why the Lord sets things in order. The devil and his work destroys so when you see the apostles pastor saying that wherever you find disorder and every vile practice what you're seeing is the devil's playground what you see is a wisdom that by its fruit has served to to advance the purposes and the cause of the dominion of satan here's what you have to understand James is not saying that every bit of so-called wisdom, and define it any of the three ways we've described it here, not all of the wisdom is, is bad in the sense that if you follow it, you're going to wind up broke and penniless on the street. But what he is saying is that the wisdom of the world is characterized fundamentally By an anti-God disposition of self-absorption. That is the premise of the fall. You will be like God. The wisdom of this age will not lead you to the kingdom. You cannot philosophize your way to the kingdom of God. 
I don't care how many of the early church fathers thought some of those pagan Greeks could do so. They were wrong. The wisdom of this age is fundamentally hostile to God. That is the teaching of Scripture. That is why in a world that is characterized by plurality and pluralism, diversity, the Romans knew about China. Did you know that? I don't know the Latin word, but the Latin word for China was land of silk. Okay, they knew the world was big and broad and lots of different colored people, lots of different languages, lots of different... They had diversity. But yet the Bible, in the space of it, can still speak of the world singular as if it's this monolithic thing. Why? Because in all their diversity, there is commonality. And the world, fundamentally, is hostile. So, the danger here is that we as new creatures bring it into the church. And we start reasoning and prioritizing and, and, and assessing and, and judging situations, scenarios, and people through the lens of the wisdom of this age. And we wonder why that kind of backfires in our face and doesn't lead us to growth and godliness. What we need is the wisdom that comes from above. And we're taught one of the first things you learn in, in the Bible is what is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. The beginning of, the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Why is that the case? Because one of the first things everything in life needs to know is its place. Everything needs to know its place. And nothing keeps you in your place like knowing that there is a God who is all-powerful to whom you will give an answer. It should cause every tyrant to tremble, every bully to, second, to reconsider, every adulterer, every, every criminal, every, every liar, everybody should pause in their steps to reckon with the fact that there is an all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God to whom they will give an account. And he cannot be bribed, he cannot be bluffed, and he sure cannot be beat. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And having come to the cross where we see his wrath and love on display simultaneously, we come into the fear of the Lord. As an aside, parents, one of the chief things you need to teach your kids is the fear of the Lord. Raise your children, parents, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. In the Ten Commandments, there are two tables. We call them tables. The first four commandments deal with principally our duties to God, and the second table, the last six commandments, deal principally with our duties to other people. And it covers some pretty horrendous things. You know, don't murder people. Well, that's a big deal, right? Don't murder people. Don't steal stuff. Don't commit adultery. All oh, those are important. Guess what the first commandment of the second table is? Honor your father and your mother. It's listed priority-wise before murdering people. 
Why is that? Because if you haven't taught them to respect proper boundaries and to learn their place, everything else is fair game. So I say this, at home is where they will learn to fear God. You have them with us in church for an hour or two a week. At home is where you'll interact with them about what they've learned in school, seen on TV, heard on the radio, heard on their podcast. We don't listen to the radio anymore, do we? Uh, at home, teach them. But I'll tell you what. This is, this is where I'm going to lose some of you, parents. Parents, listen. Everything they're going to learn about God comes fr from you at home. If, so the fundamental thing that you need to teach them to, is to listen to you. So let me put it a little more starkly. The most fundamental lesson you need to teach that child is, is to fear you. Amen. <laughs> no, be your child's friend when they get older. In the same way that you're to fear the Lord, you should, when you're a child, if, if the child will not listen to you, they won't hear what you're saying about anything. The first thing they must learn is that you are the authority. And then from that starting position, you can teach them every wonderful thing they need to know, specifically to fear God. If, if my child doesn't fear me whom they can see, how will they fear God whom they cannot? Okay, so wisdom from heaven, the fear of the Lord. The wisdom that is from earth manifests itself fundamentally in strife and in discord. The strife that comes from pursuing our agendas and goals, you know, I'm going to get one better than them, even in an ideal socialist state, as Stalin was so fond of saying, not everyone is equally equal, okay? Everyone is going to, there's a pecking order in the world, that's the way the world is, but what does heavenly wisdom look like? Again, no imperatives, just pictures. So in verse 17, James gives us eight characteristics of what heavenly wisdom looks like in practice. It doesn't look like the, the recitation of profound truisms, the the, the, the teaching of amazing propositions. No, it, it, eight, eight characteristics. First, heavenly wisdom's pure. It looks like a person who is living their life in holiness. Second, it's peaceable. Now, the Bible calls, there are times when we have to contend. Jude tells us to contend for the faith delivered once for, but there are too many people, too many of us, who have an itchy trigger finger, so to speak. We're always ready for a fight. A peaceable person is someone who really doesn't want to. Who they're, they're looking for the way for there to be harmony. Third, gentle. That when something has to be said, they don't say it in the most abrasive, callous way possible. Gentle. Reasonable. You can, they'll actually listen. And they're open to the idea that oh, I might be wrong. Some people are not reasonable. Are you? Merciful. Full of mercy, he says. We've been shown much mercy. 
Are we quick to show mercy or do we want to make sure they, they really understand the nature of their offense and just rake them over the coals? Just a... Merciful or not? Fruitful, full of good works. Impartial. He's already talked about impartiality and he's going to talk about it again. But not, not showing favoritism for, oh, oh, you come in the door and you look like you might benefit me if I get on your good side and you come in and oh you look like a nobody so impartial sincere it's hard to find sincerity these days where when someone says hi they, they're really just trying to be friendly so the wisdom that comes from above we are called to demonstrate by our good conduct Model Christ. That's what we're told in Philippians 2. Have this mind, which was also in Christ. He's the paradigm. Submitting yourself to the purposes and plan of God, living a life of purity, peace, gentleness, reasonableness, mercy, fruitfulness, impartiality, and sincerity. Learn the wisdom of the kingdom of heaven because that is the kingdom to which you now belong. This world is languishing. And here we are as an outpost of this new kingdom. Let's go. Let's work our jobs. Let's do our shopping. Let's do our recreating. And everywhere we go, they should see the fact that this person is obviously operating from a different perspective. I assure you, when you're an American in Germany, you can tell that you're an American just by the way you walk. It was, it's very true. We come from a different culture now. So, brothers and sisters, you want wisdom, live it out. Seek the wisdom that is from above. It's what the world is desperately needing.